Welcome to TNS, the new school at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a conversation with Rabbi Erwin Keller and host Michael Lerner, titled An Inquiry into the Nature of the Jewish Faith. Erwin Keller, welcome back to the new school. <laughs> Thank you, Michael. I feel like I was just here. I was just here. <laughs> right. You were just here. But since the last time you were here, you have been ordained formally as a rabbi in the tradition of Zaman Schechter. What does that mean for you? What does it mean to you? Hmm. I've been giving that thought because working as a rabbi is something that I've been doing for a dozen, more than a dozen years. Um, and the calling to be a rabbi is much older than that. Um, but having, having worked as the spiritual leader of a synagogue for so many years with everyone saying, Oh, you know, we don't, you're our rabbi. We don't care. Or, you're already a rabbi or all of those things, which are, beautiful and well-intended, it starts begging the question for me, so why did I do this? <laughs> but it felt important to me um, to take this path in a, for a couple of reasons. One was that I really wanted to deepen into my learning. I really wanted to have greater resources to bring to this congregation and to the world. I wanted to have a community of people that I studied with and a community of teachers I could turn to. And I also wanted to be part of a lineage. Um, it felt important to me to receive the transmission of smicha, of ordination, from my teachers and their teachers and their teachers. Um, that was something that I felt a longing for. And, um, and then last week it, last week it happened. So I've been spending the week trying to figure out what it feels like to have this title rabbi. Um, and does it feel different? And does it feel different in, in ways that I want? <laughs> and what have you discovered so far? Well, it's a, it's a mix. Uh, you know, I, I found myself happy about it uh, in that it was a, as people were starting to call me rabbi this week, I saw their delight in calling me rabbi. I felt uh, for the first time really what it would mean for others, um, particularly, particularly for the people in the congregation who have been on this journey with me for all of these years, not just the years that I was in, in seminary, what it meant for them to be able to say that I'm their rabbi without having to qualify that with a footnote. I also have an awareness that, you know, I have my own ideas, uh, you know, that about what rabbi is and, and I've experienced rabbis who are just, um, gushingly wonderful teachers and effusive spirits. And I've, and I've experienced rabbis who are very wooden and, um, and I'm aware with, with, you know, with some that the title can be, 
you know, the title can be a, a kind of a mask and, um, and can be also distancing. And it's important to me to remain like who I am, to remain casual in my relationships with people, with congregants, um, to be approachable. And so I have some hesitancy there, but you know, I am who I am and the title's not going to change that substantially. So I'm willing to let that worry go. Hmm. Well, it felt important to me to have this conversation with you soon after your ordination as a rabbi. Um, for listeners who don't know us, uh, you are married to my beloved friend, partner, and colleague, Oren Slosberg, who is the executive director of Commonweal. You are very much a part of our Commonweal community. You have led and continue to lead conversations for the new school. Um, there are many, many places where our lives have crossed, um, and for which I'm deeply grateful. Uh, our mutual friend, Rachel Naomi Remen, the medical director of the Cancer Health Program, uh, loves you as a rabbi and has said on more than one occasion, I would follow Irwin anywhere. And uh, so uh, you have touched uh, the lives of uh, people I love and care about, and you've touched my life. Um, and I know for myself that I come into this conversation with personal questions of my own. So it's not only about discovering what this new experience means for you, but engaging you as in a sense, I was thinking as my rabbi, um, you know, more than anyone else, I don't, ha I haven't had a rabbi, right? Mm -hmm. I haven't, uh, as you know, my mother is Christian. My father uh, was Jewish. Um, you know, the Jews thought I was Christian. The Christians thought I was Jewish, you know, mm -hmm. particularly because my father was quite well known as a political philosopher. So as my friend Paul Gorman used to say, who was both Christian and Jewish, mixed marriage, he used to say, no home, mm. no home, you know. Mm. Uh, and I have lived with no single spiritual home and have created over time, um, you know, my brief description of myself is as a Jewish, Christian, Buddhist, yogic, Sufi with Taoist influences. That's, <laughs> you know, I say that lightly on the one hand, but those Jewish, Christian, Buddhist, yogic, Sufi, those five traditions have each opened to me in really important ways in my life. And so I have to credit them all. But it begins uh, that the order is not accidental because um, I'm so aware that I come from a long and, to my knowledge, pious Jewish lineage. Um, my what, do you know, what do you know about your father's family? Going well, back? My, my father's family lived in a, a small Jewish community on the minsk smolensk frontier between Russia and Poland. And uh, uh, my great-grandfather was a, a deeply uh, pious Jew who, um, when the rabbi was not touring through the little shtetl where they lived, um, he would lead the services. 
Mm-hmm. And he apparently wrote a long manuscript, which my grandfather brought to this country, but it got lost, which I'm very sad about. Mm. My grandfather, who came to this country uh, in the uh, early 1900s, worked in uh, Hell's Kitchen in the garment industry, and then was able to bring my father and his two sisters and his wife over in 1906 when my father was three and they you know were able to move to a a a place in new jersey where they ran a milk route and ultimately to new haven where they also ran a milk route and my father would study as he led their blind horse on the milk route um, and recite poetry to the horse to the blind Mm. So my father was the one who made it out of poverty, but he broke the connection to Judaism. He was always proud to be a secular Jew, but he broke the connection to the spiritual dimension of Judaism. And of his three sons, I turned out to be the one with a strong spiritual orientation and so I think I'm the one who has felt that break most deeply. Mm. Mm. So it's do you, any the, sense what, do you have any sense what led your father um, through to the path that he took? Yes, absolutely. Uh, you know, he he got one of two scholarships to Yale from the New Haven Public Schools. He went to Yale planning to teach literature, but his literature professor, he was brilliant, my, my father was. Um told him that no Jew could get a job teaching literature at a university at that point. So he switched to social science where he could get a job. And at that moment, it was the 1930s, and he followed the tradition of so many, uh, you know, uh, Jewish uh, activists into uh, democratic socialism. Mm -hmm. And... uh, so he never joined the Communist Party, but in any case, he, and then he, over his lifetime, he followed the transition of many once radical left Jewish intellectuals into something like the neoconservative tradition. Uh, although he never, just as he never signed up with the communists, he never signed up with the neoconservatives. But the point was that his thinking went from radical left to uh, sort of center right. And I always teased him that if I knew, I could tell what his position on an issue would be if I knew how it affected Israel and the American Imperium. And those were the two kind of North Stars of his political views. It had to be good for Israel. It had to be good for the American Imperium. What was the spiritual quality of your father's political interests? I mean, I think about the uh, sort of the movement toward democratic socialism in that part of the century. And I think there was a zeal to it that was that was powerful and was um, had a quality of tikkun olam. I mean, it was very Jewish and it was very spiritual in a certain way. Well, that's a beautiful question. And I agree with that. I mean, there was a New Yorker cartoon of, of two businessmen on the commuter train coming in from Connecticut. And one is scowling at the other with a copy of the New York Post in his hand and saying, who is this Max Lerner? You know, uh, you know, he was sort of sort of 
different from Walter Lippmann, who did a very good job of disguising his Judaism, but he was, um, you know, very politically sophisticated uh, and, um, and yes, passionate about democratic socialism. And so, yes, I would say that's a beautiful question for me because, um, because it did have a spiritual quality. There's no question about it. So I want to start with uh, a simple question, um, but yet a very deeply difficult one that I really want to hear what you have to say about, which is, um, what does it mean to you to be a Jew? (laughs) My friend and teacher, Rabbi Diane Elliott, says that to choose to be a Jew in this moment of the world is to choose to be a healer. Mm. Um, I think that um, this world has so much brokenness to it. And and we as Jews also have so much brokenness to us. We've experienced so much historically and we carry so much trauma in our genes. Um, we're living in a moment when at our best, we're reinventing Judaism in ways that are, that are um, decoupled from a sense of chosenness and instead um, uh, charged with a kind of mission for helping this world heal, helping the planet heal, um, sort of decentralizing our experience, but recognizing that there's, there are batches of tools that we bring with us, texts and history and song that we bring with us that can be activated in ways that benefit the planet, in ways that help us individually be whole, but also help us do the healing of the world. Um, I've always felt connected to lineage. Um, I read about antiquity and I want to be there. I read about the Middle Ages and I want to be there. And certainly it was no picnic to be there. But uh, I'm fascinated and I feel at every moment the ways in which who I am and the world that I live in, my life, my life as a Jew, is connected to what the life of a Jew was in the 1700s in Germany or in Poland um, and how that was connected to the life of Jews in Ashkenaz in the year 900, and how that was connected to living under the Roman Empire. Um, so for me, I, I, I always feel a piece of uh, a piece of a historical timeline and a historical unfolding, and it's always been important to me to see myself in light of the unfolding. And it also gives me a sense of the possibility of future unfolding. I think there's a lot of cynicism in the Jewish community around our future, around what we have to offer, um, the way Judaism has played out in American culture and American comedy is very self-hating, very dismissive of what we've got and elevates, um, elevate stuff that's not of, of terrible consequence. Um, and, uh, and I want to be a piece of, 
of that changing. I want to be a piece of the unfolding of. And in every instance in Jewish history where there's been the fear that, oh, this will spell the end of Judaism, it hasn't. And so I feel like we're in a moment where you know, there's a lot of, oh, well, it's over. And it's not. It's in flux. It's becoming something else. It's growing. It's evolving. It's changing. It's opening the doors to influences and teachings that, that we need. And it's opening to come in and opening the doors for teaching that has been suppressed to emerge and find its place. That is so beautiful. Uh, you said several things that really struck me. Um, uh, one thing you said, very powerful statement, uh, that you experience your uh, way as decoupling from chosenness. That's a powerful statement for a rabbi to make. Well, uh, I'm, I'm not the first, you know, uh, the reconstructionist movement, which was started by Mordechai Kaplan is very much based on that. That's an, uh, that's a, a key tenet of reconstructionism is letting go of the traditional idea of Jewish chosenness and the Hebrew liturgy was changed in the reconstructionist movement in order to let go of, um, the Jewish Renewal Movement, uh, in the Jewish Renewal Movement, Reb Zalman, Shachter Shalomi, of blessed memory, also made changes in liturgy. He, he did very clever and subtle changes of changing one letter in a word <laughs> so that it would, uh, it would invert the meaning and uh, let go of chosenness. Um, so I think, I think in a number of streams of, of Judaism, particularly in this country, there's an awareness that um, chosenness is a kind of triumphalism that we need to let go of if we're going to move into the next age of this world. Um, that we need to be we need to be um, cognizant of the important contributions and missions of different um, different religious and ethnic groups in this world. That everybody has a role to play, and not everyone's role is the same, but everyone has a role to play of equal import. You know, I, I don't, one of the things I think you know about me is I don't like to disguise my ignorance. And I actually didn't know that Reconstructionist Judaism had given up chosenness as a, a, a meme. That's really important. So um, I could have imagined Zalman Schechter having given it up, but I didn't know that Kaplan had given it up before. Kaplan was radical in lots of ways. I mean, you know, the sort of the the catchphrase that people use about him it was his his identifying Judaism as an evolving civilization, and um, and the importance of that is there are d different ways in which that's important. But in his vision, um, Judaism wasn't just a religious phenomenon, and in America, people were rejecting their Judaism because they didn't want religion, they didn't want religious life, or the re particular religious forms that Judaism was offering were oppressive in some way or narrow in some way, and um, and required beliefs that people didn't share. Um, 
Whereas if we think about Judaism as a, as a kind of unfolding civilization, there are ritual elements, but the ritual elements are not the sole elements. Um, and so, for instance, your father's work, political work, political philosophy work, would also be a piece of the unfolding Jewish civilization, mm-hmm. um, even if he never walked into a synagogue. Beautiful. So I'm ignorant of, about a lot of things here. I have broad outlines, but I'm going to keep asking you stupid questions. Um, how did uh, uh, Rabbi Zalman Schachter uh, relate to Kaplan? In other words, did he see himself as an integral part of that movement? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, that my answer is not yes. Um, I'm just nodding that uh, I'm understanding yeah. the question. I, I just want to first reflect back that um, it seems uh, it's uh, just to say that, that none of these questions are stupid questions. These are questions that we, like what you just said, these are questions that we, we um, struggle with all the time. And uh, every question, every question that bubbles up is a question worth asking. Mm-hmm. There's a Hasidic story about never trading a, never trading a, a good question for a, for an answer. You're mm-hmm. better off without an answer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so Reb Zalman comes from a very different lineage than Kaplan. So Kaplan came out of the conservative movement, uh, the American conservative movement, and the conservative movement itself was uh, splintered from the American reform movement, which was transplanted from Germany um, and came to. It came alive during the um, Enlightenment. And so uh, reform began in Germany with very much trying to change the, the forms of Judaism, the, the ritual forms of Judaism, so that, so that German Jews could be Germans, could be fully Germans, um, which was new, right? Because Jews were always seen as separate. Sometimes they were walled off as separate, and sometimes the walls were invisible, but the walls were there nonetheless. Um, and so the idea of citizenship for, for anyone, um, including Jews, uh, is a is an enlightenment idea, and so flowing from that was how do we? What's the question? How do we live as citizens of Germany, and then later, how do we live as citizens of America, and maintain um, a Jewish existence, a Jewish identity of some sort? And that might be sort of the first boxing up of Judaism into the idea of religion. Um, and so Kaplan, so the conservative movement split off from the reform movement for a variety of uh, reasons, both demographic and philosophical. And then Mordechai Kaplan split off from conservative movement for philosophical reasons. He was radical in his way. You know, the first bat mitzvah um, in this country in the 1920s, 1922, I think, I don't recall, the anniversary's coming up soon. Um, was of Kaplan's daughter. He gave his daughter a bat mitzvah, and, uh, um, which was a radical shift. In the conservative movement, there was still a way in which change was being held, and still is held, through a, a halachic process. That is, through a, uh, through a judicial kind of process. A question would come, and... Um, and judges, that is, you know, rabbis or a team of rabbis would would work on um, finding an answer to the problem, 
using precedent, using religious legal precedent. So if one had brought the question of can uh, a 12 or 13-year-old girl be honored as a bat mitzvah in the synagogue and called to Torah in some way, and it had been put to the, the, the teams of, of legal reasoners, the answer would have been no. They, they would not have been able to find easily in, in Jewish legal precedent a, a way to allow women to be afforded that equality. Kaplan did it anyway, and that was huge. Kaplan created a kind of Judaism where our vision of a just world is as or more important than um, the precedents that we've received, uh, the traditional precedents we've received. And that's, that's a piece of his idea of Judaism as an unfolding civilization that it unfolds it doesn't and it unfolds in a variety of ways um, and it unfolds with the time so Kaplan was quite radical and the reconstructionist movement has always been at the forefront um, the first to the first with bat mitzvah the first to uh, ordain women the first to ordain gay and lesbian people um, the reconstruction American reconstructionist movement Reb Zalman grew up in a Hasidic community in Europe, came to America and studied with the, the Lubavitcher rabbi, rabbi, Lubavitcher Rebbe, not the last one, but his, but his predecessor was Reb Zalman's Rebbe. Um, and he was ordained through L the Lubavitcher movement, through the Chabad movement, and became one of their missionaries. He had a post at a university in Winnipeg and you know, and did sort of the work of, of Chabad, which is to bring people into that sort of practice, into their particular practice. Um, and that's the lineage that he gives over, right? The lineage that comes to me through Aleph, through uh, the Aleph ordination program, is Reb Zalman's lineage, which is a Hasidic lineage, never went through, did not pass through the Enlightenment, um, did not pass through the American denominations. Reb Zalman um, didn't explicitly break away, but did begin to create his own thing. He experimented with psychedelics that uh, changed him and his views significantly. And he began to have a vision of a Judaism that has the ecstatic practice, the contemplative practice of Hasidism that has the mysticism in it, um, the joy, the depth but was also politically progressive and egalitarian and open to people who did not come, did not grow up uh, in that, in that, in those movements um, and open to Jews who grew up uh, like I did as a reformed Jew in America, um, looking for something deeper or higher. Um, and so in terms of the, uh, in terms of the chosenness question, for him, it was a realization that came through his experience, through his um, raised consciousness, um, through altered consciousness as well, that if we're really going to be um, of service to this planet, then we have to take ourselves out of the center. So he arrives at a similar place as Kaplan from a very different process. So, but 
And again, forgive me for ignorance, but uh, that's no longer a stupid question, but they are questions of unknowing. My memory is that Ner Shalom is sometimes described as a reconstructionist congregation. Mm-hmm. Right. And so you founded a reconstructionist congregation and studied as a rabbi in the Zalman Schechter Hasidic tradition. I found so, a reconstructionist congregation. I did not found one. <laughs> oh, okay, you found it. Yeah, I was I was a member of Ner Shalom. Um, before oh, I see. I didn't know that. I thought you started it. Yeah, no, no it it dates back a, a couple decades before me. Okay. Uh, before my time. All right, that's helpful. So you found it. Uh, you became the leader of it. Are you unusual, or does it often happen that these two different threads of Judaism come together? There's a particularly lovely dance that happens between Reconstructionism and renewal um, that I've noticed. A lot of the teachers in the renewal movement uh, received their first ordinations through the Reconstructionist movement and then later received a second ordination from Reb Zalman. You're listening to a TNS Conversation with Rabbi Erwin Keller and host Michael Lerner. When I went to the Reconstructionist Convention uh, a few years ago, I knew so many people, and I knew them through the Jewish renewal world. Um, So I think there's a particularly lovely and intimate dance going on between renewal and Reconstructionism. Mm -hmm. Does that dance extend to other branches of Judaism from the renewal movement? Um, you know, renewal rabbis end up taking posts in all kinds of places. Really? Mm-hmm. So there are renewal rabbis. You know, there's only a small number of renewal congregations in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, there are renewal rabbis that have conservative pulpits. Um, I don't know if there are many that have reform pulpits. The reform movement is continues to be robust. Their seminaries are robust. They have a lot of graduates and they place their graduates in their congregations. So I think they're a little bit less permeable um, in terms of rabbinic leadership. Ideas, no. I mean, ideas are permeating all the time. And if you, um, there are, you know, one of the gifts of renewal Judaism is certain um, kinds of, um, certain kinds of uh, of ritual practices that have seeped into reform synagogues as well. And so those are practices that get you, you know, out of the prayer book and um, out of your head. Maybe they include dancing, um, singing, singing songs without words, nigunim. Um, they might include bringing mystical concepts. Mm-hmm. Um, they might include meditation so I would say if you looked at the website of any reform synagogue these days, um, they will offer some of those things as enrichment, and some of those things might be taking place in the sanctuary as well, um, with varying levels of comfort and awkwardness. How old were you when you first wanted to be a rabbi? I was eight. What What was the moment? Do you remember the moment? <laughs> I do remember 
my third grade Sunday school teacher had us read a story about Rabbi Hillel. Rabbi Hillel was uh, one of the Tanaim, one of the rabbis of the Mishnah living under uh, Roman rule. So Rabbi Hillel, when he was a child, wanted, longed to study Torah um, more than anything else. And the adults wouldn't let him because he was a kid. And there's this story, and it's probably just a fable, but he climbed up um, on the roof of a building where the rabbis were discussing Torah because there was a hole cut out for the smoke from the fire to uh to to leave the building and so he climbed up so he could listen but it was cold it was snowing in jerusalem and they found him in the morning half frozen to death and they brought him in to warm him by the fire and and he started talking torah with them and they and they brought him into their community but what hit me about this story was it had never occurred to me that someone could desire to learn. And I was in third grade. Learning was something I was doing, but it was something something you do in school. But, but my understanding of it culturally was it was a requirement that you pass through. Um, and this idea of Torah Lishma, as we say in Hebrew, learning for its own sake, um, was alien to me. And it just ignited this desire in me, this longing, to learn and learn and learn and um, specifically to learn Jewish, to learn Torah, to learn as much as I could about my people and our past and our texts and our beliefs. And, um, and in the Judaism that I knew in the Jewish community, I knew the only way one could do that was to be a rabbi. Mm-hmm. Um, there was no idea of sort of citizen scholars, <laughs> Um, and, uh, the, uh, so that became very alive for me, um, and remained alive for me. It remained sort of my primary, you know, not my identity was not just, I'm a Jew. My identity was I'm a Jew and I'm going to be a rabbi. And did that stay with you through your whole life from that moment on? Well, when I was, you know, I was surrounded by people who were like that. You know, I, I was a, I was very involved in Jewish stuff and Jewish learning, Jewish summer camp. And so my peer group was like that as well. And so when I was 22 and all of my peers began to apply to rabbinical school and I went to do the same, that's when I realized I, I tell the story as if that's when I realized I might've, I might've known it, but I was coming out of the closet at the time. I had just come out of the closet and I discovered that there were no seminaries, no Jewish seminaries in America or anywhere for that matter that would accept an openly gay student. Um, and I, I spoke to, you know, I, there were some gay rabbis. There was one in the whole country who was out um, who had not been out, obviously, in rabbinical school, came out later. And I spoke with him. I, I called him on the phone. I spoke with him. And, you know, and he said, you know, you're just going to have to lie about it and, uh, and then come out later, which was, you know, what 
the common wisdom was uh, among whatever underground there was. And it, it felt wrong to me. Um, it felt wrong to me on every possible level. Um, I felt like I had something to contribute and I had something to contribute as, uh, as a gay person, like not just not. So, so it felt, it felt wrong to, um, have to lie about that felt like it would somehow, it would, it would be twisting to me in a, in a certain way. And I had a partner at the time, I had a boyfriend at the time and, um, I wasn't willing to ask someone else to go into the closet so that I could go to school. Um, and so I didn't go that direction. Was that, did that feel tragic to you? It was terrible. It was horrible. No. It was horrible. And I, uh, you know, I went to graduate school in Near Eastern languages and linguistics, you know, so I was still dealing with Semitic languages and I was part of Jewish studies, um, Jewish studies programs at the university. Um, but also in those years right then was when the AIDS epidemic began. And so all of a sudden there was something else that was completely demanding and occupying. I mean, I, I managed to stay in school. I went to law school, um, then, but, um, but responding to the epidemic was a kind of ministry, mm. um, which I first uh, first took the form of you know activism, uh, sort of street activism, and um, and some political work, and then law, and more street activism, and then more law. I ran an AIDS legal referral, uh, an AIDS legal services organization in the Bay Area, um, and so I was doing work. I was, I was engaged in ways that it wasn't like I said goodbye to the rabbinate and then did meaningless things. Um, my life had a lot of meaning. Um, I was always making meaning with it. And I was always doing things that had a quality of ministry to them. Even, um, even then with the Kinsey Six, uh, this is the drag acapella group uh, quartet that I um, co-founded in 1993 and toured with for 21 years. Even that, uh, you know, it grew out of our time uh, in the AIDS epidemic. It, it grew out of a need for laughter and joy in a very, very dark time. Um, it, it grew out of a need for open naughtiness in a time of a lot of suppression of queer people. And that in itself felt like a kind of ministry as well. Um, I think at a lot of points there, I felt like, well, eventually I will circle back and go to rabbinical school. And then it, there was never an opportunity. And at some point, Oren and I realizing sort of what our incomes were, what our family, you know, what our, our family structure, how much we were earning, kids, with our co-parents who were gonna someday have to go to college. And uh, there was a moment when we had this serious discussion and realized it's, it's not gonna happen. There isn't a way for me to go to rabbinical school and make a shift in, I think, what at the time were my 40s. Um, it's not gonna happen. And that was, the, that was a moment when I said goodbye to it. Being a rabbi.
Well, so when did you discover later, it happened? When did you discover that you could do it? <laughs> so, you know, I I had this career touring uh, with the Kinsey Six, and uh, a friend of mine who was my cantor growing up, who was also a mentor of mine, um, hired me to do cantorial work on High Holy Days at a couple of places. So I, you know, I I always felt like I was on the edge of it, like I was on I was on the perimeter of it somehow. And then when I moved to Sonoma County and I joined Ner Shalom and the rabbi was, was um, moving on to another, another uh, place and it left a kind of vacuum that was difficult for the congregation and there, were, there was a lot of rancor and things were coming up and there was panic. Let me handle the high holy days. I'll, I can do it, and uh, and you can pick up your rabbinic search again, you know, in the winter, and you don't have to panic about finding, about auditioning rabbis to come in from out of state to to lead High Holy Days. And they were relieved, and they said yes. And into those High Holy Days in 2008, I poured everything. <laughs> it's like I had, I had. Uh, you know, I was, I guess I was 48. So I had been, I, I had already been dreaming of the rabbinate. I had already been feeling called for four decades. I had all that time, all those years of, of learning and longing and learning melodies and learning liturgy and trying things this way and trying things that way and joining different communities and, and experiencing my Judaism in different ways and reading about Reb Zalman and um, becoming inspired to learn more about Kabbalah, about mysticism. I had all of this was alive in me and it all just poured out during those high holy days as if it might be my only chance ever. Um, and when the, when the high holy days were over, the board came to me and asked if I would come on staff part-time and serve as the rabbi and they would call off their search. And I said, yes. And that began my rabbinic career. What was it like when the board came to you and offered you that? Um, it was moving, validating, astonishing. Um, it felt like a kind of ordination in that moment. Um, I'm sure I cried a lot about it. And Oren and I had to work it out too. Um, uh, because it was, uh, you know, when you, when you go into the rabbinate, when you go into any clergy position, you, you your family gets dragged along with you. <laughs> Um, and we had to work out what that was going to be like for us. Mm. Um, yeah. How do you and Oren, your husband, our executive director, um, experience the different ways in which you both experience Judaism? What is that like for the two of you? Um, I think what we what we look for from our Judaism is actually very similar to each other. Where we come from is pretty different, 
mm-hmm. and the places where there was a gap between what I would envision, what he would envision came out of our backgrounds. Right? Mm-hmm. So I grew up in a reform congregation. I grew up as part of American synagogue life. Mm-hmm. Um, Oren grew up in Israel with um, English speaking parents, but uh, still uh, sort of in the secular Israeli world mm-hmm. with, uh, and in Israel um, for the most part, there's orthodoxy mm-hmm. kinds of orthodoxy and there's um Secularity, and there isn't, uh, there aren't, you know, th- there are more and more inroads among progressive branches of Judaism or homegrown things happening happening in Israel among people who grew up secular. But, uh, but in general, in general, there is no sort of middle ground in Israel. So secular kids grow up feeling oppressed by religious authority that usually has political power attached to it. Hmm. So, uh, you know, life, having to live life on the rhythm of Jewish time, even if it's not your personal practice, even if you don't find it personally meaningful. And I think Oren and his peer group also had uh, a strong, uh, a strong resentment around the ultra-Orthodox not being, not serving in the army, that everyone in Israel serves in the army, but the ultra-Orthodox don't. And, um, and so there's a, a resentment that Oren had. And often for Israelis, that resentment gets cast at all religious practice. Not so, so um, you know, I sometimes will get that from Israelis. Like they don't know what kind of Judaism I practice. They don't know how I do Jewish, but they're very quick to condemn it. Um, because it, if it's not secular, then it's got to be orthodox. Um, and therefore it's oppressive to them or it, it presses those buttons for them. When Oren came to America in his twenties, um, it started being different. And I know that he was, you know, he started finding, uh, spiritual enlightenment, spiritual experiment, uh, experience in the, in the radical fairies, um, mm-hmm. group started by Harry Hay in the 1970s. And, uh, and his circle of radical fairies included some Jewish guys who were part of a queer minion, a queer Jewish group in the Bay Area. And so Oren was part of that group. And it was a group that brought together Jewish renewal practices, sort of Zalman-inspired Jewish renewal practices, and neo-pagan practices. And it was a place where he really felt at home. And I became part of that minion, too. And I really felt at home there. And that was really my pivot out of sort of, you know, the Judaism I grew up with into renewal was through the queer minion. Isn't that fascinating? And I love your idea. I mean, well, this conversation is very important to me, but I love your idea of seeing Judaism not as a religion, but as an unfolding civilization. I think that's a particularly beautiful way of seeing it. I mean, it is a religion, or it has a religion, or, you know, there are themes, clearly there are themes of religion, but to see it as a civilization, I think is, uh, is that, um, is that conception also widespread? Um, I don't think so. You know, it's Kaplan, it's Mordechai Kaplan, and so it's, 
it's a basic tenet of reconstructionist Judaism. Right. I don't, I don't think that, that Jews, uh, outside of the reconstructionist movement consciously think of Judaism that way. Hmm. You know, there are, there are Jews that very much organize their Jewish identification around secular things, particularly around politics or around Yiddish culture or, um, uh, um, um, you know, sort of the, the people that grew up in the, in the, in the workman's circle schools in the Yiddish speaking schools. Um, and they were raised into a Judaism that was just about, um, a vision of a just world of a world of equality. Um, and for them, that's their Judaism. But I think for most Jews in America, I think, I think they feel like if they have no entry point into religious life, I don't believe in God, or I don't speak Hebrew or, uh, you know, any of those, if they don't feel like there is, they, they project what, um, required beliefs are, which may or may not be true. And then when they decide that they, they, that they don't connect to those things, therefore I'm a bad Jew or I'm not a Jew. I'm not really a Jew. Um, and I get that. I get a lot of that all the time. I get a lot of, this is something that happens when you, when you, uh, step into the rabbinate is you get a lot of people apologizing to you for their Judaism. Um, I come to Friday night services and I, I fidget. I don't really like it, but you know, I really want to be Jewish. It's like, okay, then don't come to Friday night services and do something else, you know, make art, uh, make music, you know, find the, find the, find the place where there are Jews doing something interesting and innovative that you want to be part of. Um, so I think that, I think that uh, Jews in America have, for the most part, a very narrow idea of what it means to be Jewish. Um, that's often uh, a view from the outside. Hmm. I had a dream about a, uh, a church outside of uh, uh, Jerusalem, and I found the church. That's a different story. But while I was there the second time, my friend Rachel Cowan, who I don't think you ever knew, did you? Yeah. Yeah, I, I met her at Commonweal, and we had lunch together. Oh, wonderful. Rabbi oh, Rachel you. Cowan, who was married to Paul Cowan, uh, who was one of the earlier rediscoverers of Jewish identity. Um, he wrote a book called An Orphan in History. Um, but he also wrote a book called Mixed, uh, Mixed Blessings, about mixed marriages. And he took our family as one chapter in, in the Mixed Blessings book. In any case, he, his parents were very close to my parents. His mother and my mother were best friends. And, um, and um, then he developed cancer, and I helped him with his cancer and his death. And that's how I got to know Rachel well, though I already uh, you know, knew the family, the Cowan family well. Um, and then Rachel, who had been as wasp as you can get, married Paul and became Jewish and then decided to become a rabbi, right? And so she became a rabbi. And then Charlie Halpin, who was running the Nathan Cummings Foundation, hired Rachel to head their Jewish program. Yeah. And Rachel went on from that to 
an incredible career bringing contemplative practice into Judaism. You know the story. Um, so um, in any case, the reason I told the story was when I was in Israel that second time in Jerusalem, Rachel had introduced me to a rabbi named Levi Wyman Kelman. Do you know him or not? Okay. His, his grandfather was my father's rabbi growing up and married my parents. Really? Wow. So uh, Felix, Felix Levy was his. Yeah. And, and the grandfather, well, let's see, it was the father who was close to Abraham Joshua Heschel, right? Or was it the grandfather? Uh, it was, they were all, they were all rabbis. Uh, right. But, but one of them was Heschel's uh, colleague at the theological seminary in New York. In any case, it would be. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, probably on the Kelman side, probably not. Not Felix Levy was a famous reform rabbi, so it must oh, have been I, the Kelmans. I get it. Okay, so in any case, um, I was there, and he, his congregation—I don't know what it was called. Was it reform, or I mean, he, it certainly wasn't Jerusalem. Yeah, yeah. It's um, I don't know. Uh, I don't know if they're reform affiliated. I think they are reform affiliated. I'm not certain. But he welcomed everybody. I think they're called Kol Hanshama. Yeah. Down in Baca. Yeah. He welcomed everyone. And I got to know him. And then toward the end, as I was leaving, it was so moving. He handed me a Torah and he handed me uh, the, uh, the prayer book or the, what is it? The prayer book the the, the wisdom of the uh, elders is a, is a piece of Mishnah. It's a piece of Talmud. Yeah. He handed me those two books. He said, here, take these. And so I took them and I began to read. And for I don't know how long, but it must have been five years, I read Torah every day in the cycle. Um, but being me, I did it alone. But the, but the um, interpretation of Torah that I found most powerful was Chabad. Mm. And I would read the, you know, the segment, and then I would read the, uh, the Chabad rabbi's commentary on it. And I remember once in New York, because I was really, actually, once in New York. It doesn't, surprise, it doesn't surprise me. Yeah. I was really moved by Chabad. So once in New York, and actually once out here at Tam Junction, Chabad had a little storefront. I went in and said, can I study? And they said, you know, are you Jewish? I said, my father's Jewish, my mother's not. They said, you can't study with us, you know? Because I, I'm just moved by that mystical dimension. Right. Um, yeah, I'm not surprised that, that you were drawn to some of the Chabad commentary on Torah because... You know, they use the way they use text is as um, portals into mystical experience or mystical understanding of the divine or the operations of creation. And, um, you know, they don't read they generally don't read the stories for plot. You know, they don't, <laughs> oh, they don't. <laughs> you know, they don't they don't care who wins this war or that war in. Well, it's in all about the Book of kings, yeah. but uh, they'll take, you know, short phrases. They'll take a phrase mm -hmm out of context and imagine what it could mean and what, what, what divine principle it could stand for. And so um, there's, you know, and this is the, you know, 
the Hasidim are, um, you know, they are inheritors of and embodiers of mystic, Jewish mystical tradition that was really kind of um, suppressed in the uh, in the Enlightenment in the Reform and Conservative movements. You know, you if you uh, if you wanted to find out anything about Kabbalah about mysticism, you had to like go to the library and find books on the occult. <laughs> You know, it wasn't it wasn't part of the living tradition, but in I never liked their this. politics. You I'm know, sorry? I, I never liked their politics. You know, I wasn't drawn to their politics. I, I mean, it's the same for me with Catholicism. I have no interest. You know, as you probably know, I'm very deeply drawn to uh, a Christ centered uh, tradition out of Catholicism. I have no interest in the institutional Catholic Church. I have no interest in the institutional Chabad movement. What speaks to me are the mystical lineages that are contained within them. Yeah. 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 I, and I think this is a this is a piece of what draws me so to Reb to Reb Zalman as a thinker and as a, a movement leader is that, you know, he he understood that the juice of mysticism is something we need, um, that the ability to, um, to have first person experience of the divine or, you know, to have, uh, an experience of, of, of expanded consciousness, whether or not you call it the divine, uh, call it the divine, but that feeds into your worldview feeds into your work in this world that that's important. And he also was willing to say no to all of the, the the political politics of Chabad that would that keep women out, that keep people whose fathers were Jewish but mothers were not out, that keeps queer people out. Um, and so, um, you know, the, look, uh, there's something about Chabad that is very attractive. And what's attractive about it is... Um, what it's like to live a life, an immersive experience of Judaism and of mysticism. Um, it's very exciting and very attractive. And it's only available to the men, um, to the men who are married to women and who are rabbis and can be supported somehow in this experience. Um, and that's, um, you know, and that's troublesome. Um, and, uh, you know, I can't, it's something I can't be part of, even though I, I understand the attraction of it. And I feel the long, it, it, um, it awakens longing in me. Um, but then my longing has to go somewhere else. No, um, I get that, it. And that's what Reb Zalman gave us. Yeah. There's so many directions I want to take this, but um, let me just mention that my introduction to Jewish mysticism was through Gershom Sholem's book, Mainstreams of Jewish Mysticism. He was one of the early rediscoverers of the mystical tradition. And then uh, through Martin Buber's work, uh, also kind of a rediscoverer, right? Yeah, or a re-revealer. You know, Buber sort of came through that tradition. Heschel came from that tradition too. Right. Um, and they ended up in this country and they ended up at Jewish theological seminary because that's the place that was right. the only place for them, which right. is the conservative movements seminary. Um, so let me take it in this direction now, because, uh, or Heschel did I remember you, you went back to Germany to look for graves of your ancestors last year. Tell us how far back and through what lineages you can trace your 
Jewish lineage. You're listening to a TNS Conversation with Rabbi Erwin Keller and host Michael Lerner. Um, you know, I, uh, I have friends who have illustrious rabbinic uh, lineages, but I'm not among them. <laughs> um, but uh, on my mother's side, you know, we go back to shtetls in Eastern Europe, in Poland and Lithuania. Mm-hmm or in what used to be the Lithuanian empire, mm-hmm. um, including folks doing some interesting things in the, from the mid 1800s through the Shoah, um, being part of a, an experimental Jewish agricultural community, mm-hmm. which was very different from shtetl life. Mm-hmm. Um, and happened when the, uh, in the, in the late 1840s, the, the czarist government started leasing out, um, plots of, you know, areas, small areas of, of questionably fertile land to poor Jews to give them a chance to farm and to try to, you know, bolster the economy that way by just increasing, you know, there were so many shortages in post, you know, after the uh, end of, uh, after the uh, emancipation of the serfs in Russia, there were tremendous um, depressions and uh, shortages. And so it was a way to sort of help advance the economy, but it also gave these Jews who had never had the opportunity to own land or work land, the opportunity to do that. And then they did it, and they did it with the support of, uh, of Jews from around the world through the, you know, Baron de Hirsch's Jewish Colonial Association, um, which would send trainers and money and tractors and trees. So there's some interesting story there, none of it religious, uh, all of it Jewish. <laughs> you said Lithuania as well as... Poland and Russia, that triangle. Yeah, so I mean, at the time that my ancestors came over, it was all Russian Empire, mm-hmm. but um, uh, the they were in the, but some of my mother's family was the northeast corner of Poland, the west edge of, of Belarus, the bottom piece of Lithuania, and all of that had been part of the Lithuanian Empire uh, in earlier centuries. And all of that was identified among Jews as Litvish, you know, Jews that came from this area, from this swath of land were Litvaks, um, meaning Lithuanians. And I mean, they weren't ethnically Lithuanians, but they called themselves Litvaks because that was their, um, that's how they identified themselves in contrast to other parts of Eastern European Jewish world. And their Yiddish is Litvish Yiddish. They have a particular accent in their Yiddish um, that, uh, um, you can identify. Yes, um, I, I piled some books here um, from my library. I don't know, but uh, Jewish with Feeling, A Guide to Meaningful Jewish Practice, Zaman Shakhtar Shalomi with Joel Siegel. Mm-hmm. Um, and then a whole bunch of stuff by Rabbi Adam Steinsels, including the three-volume Tanya piece and also um uh the 13 petaled rose which Beautiful i book, the 13 petaled yeah, rose yeah uh tormented master the life and spiritual quest of rabbi naman of Bratslav by Arthur i'm so Frank. glad you have that yes a beautiful uh, book about nachman of Bratslav. yeah by by rabbi art green i asked for wonder a spiritual anthology of heschel mm. um 
On the Road with Rabbi, Ryan Stein, Rabbi Steinsells by Arthur Kurzweil, <laughs> and Spiritual Radical, Abraham Joshua Heschel in America by Edward Kaplan. And there's a bunch of others, but uh, let me ask you about Steinsells. Um, his politics are very, very deeply conservative, but his work, I mean, I just kind of forget about people's politics because for me, often the keepers of the flame are by their nature conservative in whatever situation they find themselves. So I'm interested in the flame. I'm not interested in their politics, which are, to me, situational. But how do you hold Steinsalz's work? Um, Steinsalz, who, who just died over this last year. I know. Um, you know, I actually don't know anything about his politics. Uh, you know, there's a certain kind of so it might be that what you're saying about sort of keepers of the flame are uh, sort of inherently conservative. It might also be that uh, what we're meaning by conservative here is that he comes from a traditional background. He comes from orthodoxy, mm -hmm. lived his whole life in orthodoxy. Um, and so uh, that comes, what comes with that is a whole set of, a whole lifestyle set that presumes a certain politics, that enacts a certain politics, right? It enacts a, you know, it relies on a gender inequality. Um, mm -hmm. and so all of that is true and his mystical thinking is so it flies you know it flies and um the way he's able to um uh think you know the way he's able to move uh in the ether is very exciting and and very accessible. I think Thirteen Petaled Rose is a very accessible book. His chapter on um, and some of it is technical, right? The the chap he has a chapter on all of the the worlds, uh, and I mean that as a technical thing in in Kabbalah of are living simultaneously in four worlds, and he gives the characteristics of those worlds and explains them, and that's very. Um, you know, full of jargon and technical stuff, as well as beauty. But he has a chapter on tshuva, on the Jewish practice of returning, that gets translated as atonement. But in Hebrew, it's not, uh, it, in Hebrew, it means returning. Um, and it's a process that Jews go through, are encouraged to go through every year, leading up into the high holy days, reaching sort of a climax in the high holy days of, of making good, making peace with, with loved ones, with family, with business contacts, anyone you might've wronged, but also include, and includes taking a stock, a cheshbon nefesh, taking stock of, of who you are, and also looking at who you imagined yourself to be and where am I in my own journey? There's a big stock taking and the returning um, you know, traditionally, it's seen as a like a returning to the fold, a returning to proper practice. But I think more broadly, um, Jews see it as a returning to um, returning to sort of an honest place, returning to um, your core, and recognizing that we all end up um, we all end up on all sorts of detours from our own path. And our path doesn't have to be a path of orthodoxy, but whatever the path we're called to, the journey that's drawing us, 
we stumble off that path and tshuva is our opportunity to return. And his chapter on tshuva, so that's a very quick introduction to tshuva and it plays and it creates and it, and the way I just explained, it makes it look like a thing, an activity that humans do. But in our mystical teachings, um, God creates tshuva before he, before he, in those story, in those tellings, before God creates humanity, before God creates the world, God already creates tshuva. Um, so that tshuva is sort of a a, a cosmic, uh, sort of a cosmic force, a cosmic magnetism towards finding one's true path. Uh, Steinsaltz, yeah. So his chapter on tshuva is just so deeply beautiful. And the way he talks about, the way he talks about it in terms of causality, that the things that we do have impact and they impact other people to do things in ways that have impact. And so when, um, when we speak in ways that are unkind, it, um, it, where it lands frequently, someone else will then be unkind because they, they feel treated poorly and that carries on, et cetera. And he, he talks about tshuva as being the way of stopping those ripples, at last stopping those ripples and drawing it back in. Um, and the returning is sort of the returning of the harm that we've caused um, and keeping it from spreading further into the world. Uh, very beautiful thinking. So you appreciate Steinsaltz. You clearly appreciate uh Heschel, you uh, warmly welcome the fact that I had Arthur Green's book on Rabbi. That Nath. book is wonderful. Yeah. Um, what about the Tanya? You know, I haven't done a lot of study in Tanya. I've started doing some Chavruta study. Chavruta is our Aramaic word for studying in a dyad, and that's sort of the custom for studying holy texts but you can use it for any text that is important to you that you would consider sacred, is to study in pairs. So I've done some Chavruta study on Tanya. Frankly, I, I had kind of put it off because of my own political biases against Chabad. So the, the Tanya is uh, a mystical book of, of commentary um, and cosmology that, that was written by the Alter Rebbe, the, the Rebbe who started the Lubavitcher Chabad movement, um, who was a brilliant thinker, but sort of because of my present moment experience with and feelings about Chabad, it made it a little hard for me to dive into that text because it's also what people who are recruited into Chabad are given to study. I get it. <laughs> so I had a little allergy about it that I'm, I'm working on because it's, it's a beautiful piece of work. Mm. So you wanted to go back to Israel. I just wanted to, uh, you mentioned it coming out of our uh, conversation about where, what can form Jewish identity. And, I, 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 and it occurs to me that to not mention Israel in that context mm -hmm. is, a, is a big lacuna. So um, in post-Holocaust America, particularly, I mean, Zionism goes back earlier than that, of course, but particularly in you know, um, 1950s through 1970s or 80s America, you know, Israel was, love of Israel was um, both doctrine, uh, you know, it was dogma and it was um, identity. 
And people of my generation, we grew up with Israel at the center of our identity. And I remember at one point as a young person thinking, um, I could either be a rabbi in America or do anything in Israel. <laughs> like um, being in a place where my Jewish identity was so met, was so present all around me. You know, and uh, the, I think that um, there is tremendous, and, and so for instance, for uh, my generation of Jews who were sort of engaged Jewishly, like we learned, we learned modern Hebrew. We speak, you know, I have friends, I have American friends that I, I speak Hebrew with or can speak Hebrew with. And, and that's because we, we hooked so much into uh, our identity was so hooked into Israel, Israeli music and Israeli art and folk dancing and language. Um, and the phenomenon was also a certain kind of healing from the Holocaust. You know, there was, uh, you know, the Holocaust wiped out so much. You know, we know how many, we counted by bodies, but what it wiped out was more than bodies. You know, it wiped out a whole uh, way of being Jewish, a whole uh, authentic way of being Jewish was gone. And there was a big vacuum and this love of Israel stepped in and, and took that place. I think that's uh, also a piece of what makes it really hard to talk about Israel in the Jewish world now is because even though uh, I don't think there are any American Jews that don't see the injustice of many uh, many Israeli governmental policies, the injustice of of settling and of uh, bulldozing and of building walls and uh, etc. Our investment in an Israel that is a healing from past trauma is so deep that we don't know how to hold our, our love for that healing, our desire for justice, our desire for a just Israel. We don't know how to hold that and at the same time say, but this thing that Israel's doing is not okay and has to stop. Um, and so I think a lot of American Jews feel like they either have to say, I love Netanyahu and I love Israel and I don't question it. And it's not my job to question it. Or they have to not talk about it at all. Um, there, are, there are very few conversations about Israel in the American Jewish world that are not horrible, rancorous conversations. And it comes from that. It comes from really deep places of wound, really deep need for healing and a certain kind of betrayal as well because we were... We grew up on a mythos that was a mythos, and we see it now. And the mythos was utterly beautiful, utterly beautiful and nourishing to us. And uh, it's hard to know what to do without that. So what do you do with it? Um, I... You know, I try to come at my criticism for my criticism of Israel from a place of love of Israel. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I don't come to my criticism 
with a, you know, you've all become fascists or something like that. I come with, you promised us a vision of justice, so you have to live up to it. And this is not justice. Uh, in our remaining time together, are there any other areas that you would point to? Oh, um, oh. well, in personal story, I just want to, you would, you would ask me about, uh, um, the the graves I had visited in oh, yes. Germany, and then I, I and then I went to my mother's family in Eastern Europe to sort of get that out of the yeah. of that and set it aside so I could talk about it, and I never got back to it, and uh, and so it's it's personal and uh, and um, uh, and perhaps unimportant, but just to say that um, my father's family was a family that was much more assimilated than my mother's family in America. And as I've slowly over time discovered more about them in the old country, which I hadn't been able to do um, until, uh, you know, certainly the, this internet age um, and the uploading of millions of documents from all over the world, um, but also dreams. I, I would have dreams with ancestors guiding me towards what to look for. And, wow. uh, and this is how the Kellers themselves, the Keller family, it was a family that I knew nothing about until 2017. Uh, my great grandfather came over. I knew his birth date, his death date, lived in Chicago, um, and, um, never was able to jump back to the old country to find where he came from. And, um, and I, after a series of dreams, I did the right kind of searching and I found that he lived, that he took the name, he took his name when he came to America, that his first name was different. He had, a, he had different names in his German records. Um, he had Keller, but he, his first and middle name were different. And that's why I had never been able to find him. I was able to find, um, I was able to find someone who was the son of the people that I knew were his parents' names from his death certificate with exactly his birth date. And that's when I realized, and that's when the doors opened and I discovered that his parents, my great, great grandparents and their parents, my great, great, great grandparents were all buried in a hilltop cemetery in Southwestern Germany. The cemetery still existed. The stones still existed. And I was able to travel there. I had already been planning to travel there because of dreams <laughs> that kept pointing me towards this corner of Germany. So I decided on, uh, uh, to take a trip just to drive around <laughs> in that, in that corner of Germany. And after I already had my tickets is when these discoveries happened and I was able to visit, um, you know, I was able to land in Germany and the next day be standing at my great, great grandfather's grave who shared my name. And then at his father's grave, and his father turned to be turned out to be son of, again someone with my name, um, and um, and to see the village that they lived in, and the synagogue that they built in the 1830s that's still standing because um, in rural the little Jewish communities in the in the small towns in rural Germany, by the turn of the century the Jews were leaving, they were leaving, things were opening up and they were leaving for the big cities and they were leaving for America. And so by 1910, there were no more Jews. They had sold the building to somebody who used it then as a barn. 
Uh, but what that meant was that during the Holocaust, during Kristallnacht, Pogromnacht, it was not a target because it was not a synagogue anymore. And this town in 2004 had restored this building. I mean, it's the size of my house or smaller, a small place. Um, they had restored it. They had restored the Hebrew writing, the the particular features that are that are specific to the synagogues of that little corner of Germany. Um, and uh, I was able to discover sort of some family heritage there that was very connected with the cultural and religious life of of the Jewish community, um, that they had built a synagogue, that um, there were rabbis in that line. And, and it meant a lot to me. And it's such a shockingly late discovery of, of history and of lineage. Um, and I'm looking forward to going back there. I, I want to, there are more graves there that I haven't seen. And, um, and I just want to spend some time in that village imagining what it was like in the 1700s for Jews who had to wear identifying clothing, but were involved in the economic life of the community, what it was like for them to live there, what it was like for them to want a synagogue, for them to raise money all around Baden-Württemberg, to, to build a synagogue, to dig a mikveh underneath it so that they could at last establish themselves as Jews, um, as sort of real Jews with a place to pray and a place to immerse. Um, and it's very exciting for me to imagine. So just wanted to tell that. Oh, beautiful. So in our last uh, minutes together, um, I'd love to go on, but it'll have to be another time. Um, I just want to say, I don't know, it feels important to me to have had this conversation with you. Not only did I want to have it with you because I wanted to hear uh, what what you were experiencing after your ordination, but also um, because I'm at a point in my life where, you know, the life of the spirit has always been very central to me, but somehow it feels even more important. And although I spent years immersed in Jewish mysticism and Jewish studies, that was some time ago. And so, you know, when you talked about huh, what it means to be a Jew in the authentic sense, I think one of the things that holds me back from completely embracing that central aspect of my lineage is the same thing that holds me back from completely embracing the Christ uh, tradition, which is I don't believe I can live up to them. Mm. I believe that, you know, I describe myself as a radically imperfect human being with some useful skills. Mm -hmm. And it is my own imperfection that separates me somehow from fully embracing these uh, traditions because I know I'm not there yet. I think 
Um, I think it's reasonable to be resistant to the, the package deal. I'm not talking about the package deal. I'm talking about what you and I have been talking about, the inner spirit mm-hmm. of these traditions. And for me, to live the question of whether I will ever fully live in these traditions and recognizing that I'm not there yet feels more authentic than not. Mm. I know I could go into a riff that you could go into about how our imperfection is central to, you know, Mm. Well, what I'm what I'm actually wondering about is this idea of imperfection at all, um, or some this being something you're not uh, ready for. You have built such a spiritually rich life, right? You've built a life that has practice to it. You have daily practices. You have um, seasonal practices. You have practices with others. You have ways of holding space, sacred space. Um, you have um, a strong uh, history of and yearning toward um, uh, healing and justice. And you bring that through in both your um, devotional life and in your public life, your community life. You know, you, you seem to me to be somebody who's living fully into... Um, into a spiritual life, into a life that doesn't do its service. You've got a life that looks like religion, that looks like religion at its best. It's immersive. It's all-encompassing. It creates uh, good in the world. It uh, addresses the needs of your soul. Um, It helps you connect with others in deep ways. Um, And... And I would be hesitant to write that off as nishtahir nishtahin, as neither, neither this nor that. It is its own really beautiful, whole, um, integrated um, thing. Um, and uh, so an invitation for you to hold it that way. And it's influenced by all of these, from all of these directions. In other words, all of these nutrients all of these vitamins have come into it for you mm. by the grace of all of these traditions. Um, and there's nothing in that that's not enough. May I continue to hold you as my rabbi? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, yeah, if you're willing to take what you get, then yes. <laughs> Are there any last thoughts that you have before we close? Um, there's something I want to say about Christ-centered, Christ-centered thinking, and I, it makes me think about you know Richard Rohr's idea of the universal Christ, um, which is that underneath all of these different paths, underneath or veiled behind or uh, deep within, there's a place where we all touch, 
There's a place where we're all responding to the same yearnings and fears and joys, loves. Um, and we're all um, touching into something that's immense and, uh, and awesome. And if we can reach through the, the rituals and the patterns that are different, that make us different, that give us our uniqueness and our particularity, if we can from time to time reach through, we'll find that we recognize each other in very deep ways that um, there's a place where we meet. And, um, and it's just important to remember that it's right there, that we can rejoice in our, in our particular lineages, in our particular practices, and just lurking behind is the place where we all meet. Rabbi Irwin Keller, I hold you in the highest esteem. It actually brings tears to my eyes. Um, I feel that you have so much to offer, not only the Jewish community, but the wider community that has so much to do to understand uh, the vision of Judaism that you and others hold. Um, it's, it's very healing, not only within Judaism, but for the greater community. So my prayer for you is simply that um, you um, unfold into this new period of your life <clears throat> with joy and uh, gratitude and uh, that you touch many more people than you can imagine. Thank you for coming back to the new school. Thank you, Michael. I love you, and I'm so grateful to be part of this Commonweal community. Uh, I love you, too. You've been listening to a TNS conversation with Rabbi Erwin Keller and host Michael Lerner. Thank you for listening to TNS, the new school at Commonweal. The new school at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio producer is Ken Adams, and our theme music is by Jeremy Cohen. Visit us online at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Facebook, YouTube, Vimeo, and Amazon Music. Thanks for listening.